0: Well it is uh, really good to be here with you again this evening at Crescent. Thank you uh, for that warm welcome Uh, and great to be uh, able to take part in your series on the book of Philippians. So tonight our subject is the best goal in life and we're going to be looking at the next section of Philippians. Uh, chapter 3, and the first 16 verses, and exploring Paul's major goals and ambitions in life. Now, thinking about ambitions, uh, one thing that I really enjoy is to watch sports documentaries, especially those ones that give you a real insight into the life of the athlete. I admire the single-mindedness, the passion, the determination, the hard work and grit that is required to become world-class as an athlete. And some people just push the boundaries beyond what we would think is even possible. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, watching a National Geographic documentary called Free Solo. am not sure if you've you've heard of that. Uh, it charts the story of a guy called Alex Honnold, who is a climber, and his goal was to climb El Capitan, that famous uh, mountain in uh, Yosemite National Park in the U.S. Now, a while ago, Uh, I was then at Clip and Climb at my daughter's birthday, and climbing that sort of sheer cliff face, whatever, you know, few feet it is up in the air, that's about as as far as I can uh, go when it comes to to climbing. But Alex planned to climb all 3,000 feet of El Capitan on his own with no ropes, no safety measures, and... uh, I don't, like at that point, my mind just stops. I, I, just, I just can't even take it in. But it was quite interesting to see his life as he prepared for this, as he prepared himself physically and mentally for the challenge that was ahead, as he prepared his body, and as he, as he got himself in that mindset that would allow him to tackle uh, such a challenge as this. And that single-mindedness is just remarkable. Now, that type of single-minded commitment is what Paul has as he pursued his goal. And we'll read about that in just a minute here in Philippians 3. For him, the prize was so dazzling that nothing else compared to it. And it was worth giving everything for, worth rearranging his whole life and committing to fully. So, here's a question as we think about the best goal in life this evening. Where do your greatest ambitions lie? That is the question at the center of our passage tonight. In Philippians three, Paul describes the ambitions that drive his own life. He lets us into his thinking and shows us that his ambitions at this stage of life are very different from the ambitions that he held previously. What about you though, and what about me? What achievements in life would you be satisfied with? What would make it all worthwhile if you were to accomplish your goals? Philippians 3 forces us to think beyond just the immediate goals we have before us, beyond the the busyness and activity that so easily distracts us from the big picture. And it makes us lift our heads From what occupies our time and energy, and and try and think more broadly. Let's turn to Philippians 3 and read the first 16 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. So, as we read this passage, we have to ask whether it is possible for us to look at these few short sentences and to discover the best goal in life. Can we learn something here that transcends all uh, differences uh, of time and place, that holds true regardless of our personal circumstances or the shifts? in the societies over the years? Do we learn something that is as true for us today as it was for Paul in the first century? Well, that's the claim that I'm going to make tonight, that whatever you might aspire to, whatever you might achieve, it cannot equal the goal that Paul talks about here in Philippians chapter three. More than that, Not only is this the best goal in life to have, it is one that can be pursued regardless of who we are and what we are individually capable of. There are many goals that others have achieved that I couldn't begin to pursue. I I don't have the abilities, the skills, the training, or or the opportunities. And when it comes to, to climbing El Capitan, frankly, not the desire either. But no matter who you are, What abilities you have, what opportunities are at your door, what skills you have, the goal that Paul pursued is one that you can join him in making your ultimate goal. So what is the best goal in life? Well, Paul uses a number of different expressions to describe what he really is after in this chapter, but ultimately it all comes down to his relationship with Jesus Christ. As we read through, you might have noticed, he talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He speaks about his desire to gain Christ. He talks about wanting to be found in Christ. He wants to share in his sufferings. He wants to be made like him in his death. And what Paul really valued above everything else was his relationship with Jesus Christ. And he wanted to experience that relationship and grow in that relationship to the fullest extent possible. Paul reached a a point where his whole life was, was turned around and taken over by Jesus Christ. That famous occasion on the road to Damascus where as he was doing his level best to wipe the name of Jesus Of Nazareth from the face of the earth, he was confronted by the risen Christ, eventually coming to faith in him as the Son of God. But this day was not the end of Paul's experience of Christ. This was not the end of the journey for him. This was the very beginning. Learning who Jesus really was and Coming to to faith in him, being made right with God through him, was the very beginning of Paul's story, not the end. And here we find him some years later in prison for Jesus' sake, facing persecution and abandonment, facing the envy and rivalry of those that sought to disrupt his ministry. And we find someone who still wants nothing more than to grow in his Knowledge of his Savior. He wants nothing more than to grow in his relationship with Christ. But that wasn't how it always was for Paul. Because he started off with a totally different set of goals. And we're often encouraged to, to have goals, aren't we? In, in work, in education, in many different areas of life. And That can be really good and can be important and valuable. I read a quotation recently that a man without a goal is like a ship without a rudder. And without clear goals in work, for example, it is really easy to expend a lot of effort and energy and cost and achieve very little or achieve very little of significance. But what if we have the wrong goals? What if the things that we aspire to are not really worth the significance and value that we attribute to them? We live in a society and at a time when the goals and aspirations that are often presented to us as honorable and worthy and worthwhile are not always in step with the scriptures. And it's incredibly tempting to allow the aspirations and goals of those around us to become our aspirations, to become our goals. But there are dangers in doing that. Whenever we adopt goals that are less than what we could, we fail to pursue pursue the goals that that we should and could be pursuing. And not only that, we can actually become devastated by the effect of pursuing less worthy goals that we have elevated to become ultimate goals. And that was Paul's experience. In this passage, he uses his own life's experience to show how he had chased the wrong things in life. You know, he had everything going for him. In terms of his opportunities and achievements in life, he accomplished far more. Than any of his contemporaries, and far more than than many or all of us. In fact, he says that if anyone thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if they have reasons for selfish boasting, he has even more right to boast. And when he's talking about the flesh here, he's talking about everything that he has achieved morally and religiously without God. Let's look again at what he says from verse 4. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was a star performer. He had everything going for him. His pedigree was unquestioned, his background was immaculate, his upbringing was exceptional. Nobody could point a finger at his religious orthodoxy, his law-keeping, his political affiliations. Everything was perfect. The crowning glory of Paul's life was his zealous persecution of those that diverged from everything that he had always known and believed to be right and true. He pursued those apostate followers of Jesus of Nazareth throughout the whole country, throwing them in prison and having them executed. No doubt, as he wrote this letter and recalled his persecution of the church, he did it with more than a hint of irony. Here he was giving his all to serve God, or so he thought. He had gone further, tried harder, achieved more than anyone else. But ultimately, his whole world came crashing down around him. All of his goals and ambitions were shown to be empty. Three words changed Paul's life, shattered his dreams, turned everything he knew upside down. Three words, I am Jesus. As he made that journey to Damascus, we read he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. As he saw that light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining around him, as he heard that voice, he knew it could be none other than the Lord God speaking to him. Who are you, Lord? He asked. And he heard the one response in all of the world that he never expected to hear. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul was following his goals with the greatest sincerity and passion. But he found that what he was pursuing was not only wrong, it was the absolute opposite of what he thought he was achieving, but it was positively damaging to both himself and to others. Now what might we pursue? What might we place as ultimate goals in our life that we would eventually find to be unworthy of that. We might pursue success as our world defines it. We might, here in a Western society, pursue comfort and the good life ahead of anything else. Happy just to pass our days and not to to, to experience too much discomfort. Now, Paul had walked that road. The, the, the way that his society measured success. And he found the whole thing <coughs> to be useless. When we pursue the wrong goals, it, it seems that ultimately, uh, inevitably, one of a number of things happens to us. Most often, we fail to ever achieve those goals. They're forever out of our reach. The promise they hold out to us is never fulfilled. And we remain perpetually Dissatisfied. Maybe worse than that, sometimes we actually achieve the things that we've set our hearts on and find that they're empty. Not only have we again failed to find satisfaction, but, but we have lost the hope that they created within us. And we could think of many stories of people who achieved far beyond what they ever dreamed of, only to have their lives fall apart because they had been chasing empty idols. But ultimately, the problem with having the wrong goals is that typically they don't have any eternal significance. But Paul, well, his whole value system had now been recalibrated. His world had been turned upside down. Let's continue and look at this next remarkable section where Paul explains how the things that once meant everything to him were now of no value at all. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's a progression here you might have noticed through this section. First he says that, whatever, that, w- w- that he counted whatever gain he had as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he says that he counts everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and then that he had suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish that he might gain Christ and so here we see Paul's new ambition to know Christ he says i want to be like jesus christ i want to know him as intimately as i can know him i want to experience him to the greatest extent Possible. What he had come to realize was that Jesus Christ is everything. He had tried to live life on his own terms, with his own goals, going his own way, and he'd made an absolute mess of all of it. Now he had given up all confidence in himself and was instead depending entirely on Jesus Christ for everything. Jesus was a source of his righteousness, he was his hope for the future. He was the one that he gloried in. And Paul knew that that one day the Lord would call time on his life here on earth. He was looking forward to that upward call, but he wanted to make as much progress in this life towards perfection before that day would come. There's a theme that is unmistakable throughout the New Testament that that has a, a bearing here, And it's this, that in this life, we have a unique and finite and passing opportunity to grow and develop in our Christian faith and character. For everything that we might achieve or experience in life, one thing is certain, our our character, ourselves, our relationship with Christ will be shaped and changed. We could look to the teaching of the Lord. We could look to the teaching of uh, the apostles, Peter and Paul here, and this theme repeatedly comes through, that there's an expectation that as believers we make progress in the Christian life, that we develop a capacity to enjoy God, to experience him, that we come to know him to the fullest extent. And this is what Paul is preoccupied with, with here. He knows it's not possible to be perfect in life in that sense, in terms of his character, in terms of his knowledge of Christ, any of these things. He knows he's far from perfect now, but he wants to get as close to that as possible. So Christ wants, or so Paul wants to become more like Christ, but that leaves us with two questions to ask. What does it look like to become more like Christ? What does it look like to be like Christ? And how do we become more like Him? Now, think back to what chapter 2 teaches us here. What mindset are we told to adopt? The same mindset that Christ had. The way He thinks was demonstrated for us. What, what, What does it look like? The one who was in the form of God took on the form of a servant, took on human form. The one who was equal with God became man. And as man humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, it is because of this willing humility, his willing submission to that death on the cross, that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. But the fact remains, the pathway that Jesus Christ chose was a path of suffering and death. It was a path of sacrificing himself for the good of others. So if we ask the question, what does it look like to become more like Christ? We find the answer in his humility and suffering. If we ask, how do we become more like him? We find that it is by following the path that he took. And it's actually really interesting to to take the time to compare the language of that section of chapter 2 here with chapter 3. Because it seems like there's a really deliberate comparison between how the life of Christ is described and the life of Paul here. And it must be the same for us too. There's only so far that we can grow in our knowledge of Christ without following that journey. Another principle that is undeniable in the Scriptures is that followers of Jesus Christ should expect to suffer as He did. Now, often we don't like that idea. Often I don't like that idea. But we can't deny that that's true. The Lord Himself said in John 15, as He laid out for His disciples the reality of the type of life that they would experience following him. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Romans 8, that chapter that talks about the the, the future glory of the sons of God, links that future glory that we will share with Christ to our present sufferings with him. And in this passage, we see that the way to knowing Christ more fully is to share in his sufferings. Now, you might have heard of the idea or of the expression lived experience. This idea that you can't understand somebody or their circumstances if you haven't lived through the experiences that they have lived through. Now, there's lots of ways in which that idea is, is taken to the extreme in a really unhealthy way. But here's the Christian version of it. We can't really get to know Christ unless we allow him to take over our life and to lead us through what he went through, the way of the cross. For Paul, suffering was not something to be avoided at all costs. We do think like that sometimes, don't we? Avoid suffering and discomfort at all costs. But for Paul, suffering was an opportunity to be made more like Christ than one that he would gladly embrace. But the idea of suffering and of being made like him in his death is not left in isolation. Notice that Paul talks of the resurrection of the Lord and that we come to know Christ by the power of his resurrection. These two things in combination, sharing in his sufferings and knowing him in the power of his resurrection. And of course, in the ultimate sense, sharing in his sufferings, being made like him in his death, none of that makes any sense. Outside of the reality of the resurrection. But even in the here and now, in the middle of the trials and of the suffering, Paul is confident of experiencing the resurrection power of Christ and of being strengthened and kept and led through the suffering. Now he had yet to experience the fullness of that resurrection. His statement in verse 11 can be a little confusing. He says that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now he wasn't uncertain about the inevitability of his part in that resurrection or his eventual transformation to be like Christ. He just wasn't certain of the path between here and there. But he wanted to use every opportunity to strain towards the goal, that goal, and to be brought into closer conformity with Christ. So let's just pause here for a second as we conclude. What is being asked of us in this chapter? What are the exhortations that Paul gives to the Philippian Christians? Is the message for us to, to try and Uh, make ourselves more like Christ? Is it to try and achieve this on our own initiative, with our own power? No. Paul had already tried living life his way, and that had ended with him pursuing the worst goals. But the thing that comes out here again and again is that it's our thinking that matters. And actually, that's a major theme right through the book of Philippians. Having our thinking changed. Uh, to come in line and to match the way that heaven thinks. In verse 15, we read, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Do we want to be made like Christ? Are we willing to share in his sufferings? It is his power at work in us that will change us and make us more like him. But is that what we are aspiring towards? Is that what we have made as the chief goal of our lives? I often notice that I have again slipped into aspiring for the wrong things. Again, have lost sight of this uh, wonderful Uh, reality of knowing Christ and treasuring that as the greatest goal in life. And so often the Lord has to remind me and to point out the worthless nature of the things that I so often aspire towards. And that's what he is doing here through the words of Philippians 3, presenting to us that greatest of goals, that thing which is of unsurpassable worth, to day by day, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what the, the, the Monday morning alarm that will, that will come too soon, regardless of what that will herald in, to live life with the ambition of growing in our knowledge of our Savior, becoming more like Him, sharing more and more in His sufferings, being made more like him, conformed to his death. May he give us the grace as we uh, consider this passage of Philippians 3, as we consider Paul, the unworthy goals that he had, and what he eventually found to be the only thing worth aspiring after. May he give us the grace to aspire after the same thing, to treasure and value the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord.